Our Bible reading today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, verses 12 to 31, which you can find on page 558 of the Blue Bibles. If you, don't, if you do not have a, blue bi- a Bible, feel free to take that Blue Bible home with you. Um, consider it a gift from us to you. From verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member. But of many, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. This morning, as you can see, the, uh, t- the heading for uh, the sermon, the title is A Healthy Body Image. And uh, body image is a, a rather big talking point uh, in our day and our age. Uh, even though perhaps a few decades ago this was something that uh, was discussed more among women, uh, these days, especially in our very picture-oriented social media society, men are probably just as concerned about their body image as women. Uh, the dudes don't want dad bods. Am I right, dudes? <laughs> Kids, do you know what a dad bod is? Anyone? Yeah, nah? Because, you know, I, I think all of your dads have dad bods. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure all the dads are okay with that. 
So this morning, do you have a healthy body image? Now, I know what you're thinking. JR, this has nothing to do with what Paul means when he talks about the body in 1 Corinthians 12. What we just read uh, is not a, a, you know, Paul trying to give us godly wisdom about how to you know, feel good about yourself. And you'd be absolutely right. But I've given the sermon this title because it communicates the two major parts of the passage. God's concern in what he says through Paul to us here is that you have a healthy body image. And his concern is, uh, is that in two things. Firstly, a healthy body image of Christ's body. And secondly, a healthy body image of you as a member of Christ's body. Your body in the body of Christ. So let me ask you the question again, but this time with those two images in mind. Do you have a healthy body image? Is your perspective of the body of Christ and of your place in it a healthy biblical one? And if not, or if so, what even is that? What does it mean? What does it look like to have a healthy body image of the body of Christ and of your part in it? That's what we're going to be exploring in our passage this morning. And we'll do so looking at three main sections of this half of chapter 12, to which I've given these headings. One, many members of Christ's body. Two, diverse members in a united body. Three, gifted members of Christ's body. So with our Bibles open, with our bodies engaged, let's dive into this passage. Let me pray for us as we do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather here today as your body. We pray for the members of our body that aren't with us. Lord, may you sustain them. May they find joy in you and may they continue to uh, uh, turn to you wherever they are. And Father, we pray that as, as we uh, gather and hear your word. Lord, would you open our ears and our hearts and our minds uh, to hear what you have to say to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin at the first point, many members of Christ's body. Let me ask you, kids and adults, how many members does your body have? Anyone? Anyone have, have a guess? Somebody just throw a number at me. What do you think? 20, that's a good, 40, that's good. And we, what would you be counting, do you think? Hey, what I hear over here? One, oh, one member. Hey, that'll, that's a, that'll be a relevant observation later, as I. Well, it depends on what you count, right? I Googled this this week and it said five. <laughs> you count your head, your torso, and your limbs, and as in arms and legs. Is that five? Yeah, something like that. But if you count all the other organs, you'll end up with more, right? Maybe 200 and something. I mean, we don't, we don't really know. To be honest, it's, it's kind of a question that doesn't really have an answer. But what we do know is that there are many members to your body, many parts to your body that work together to make it work, which is Paul's point here. Let's read from verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. As I mentioned last week, uh, these are a couple of hinge verses that connect the section before and the, and the section that comes after. So Paul is, is coming from what he's just spoken about with regards to spiritual gifts, and now he moves into this image of the body. It is in the context of talking about spiritual gifts, which we saw last week, that Paul now teaches on what it means for us as members of Christ's body to be the body of Christ. As I've told most, if not all of you, when we talk about membership at our church, this is what we are referring to. And the term is commonly used these days in our society to refer to you signing up to a a, a club or the local library. But when we talk about it in church, we're referring to the fact that we're members of Christ's body. That is the, the definition of the word. And Christ's body, it finds its visible expression in the local church, his, his global body, his body which is comprised of all believers from all time, all across the globe, is given visible expression here in the local church and in the thousands of local churches everywhere. And so all Christians everywhere are united to this one body, and that unity is visibly seen in local bodies local churches. This is why the Bible can use the term so fluidly, referring to both the church global and the church local, as we see a lot in this letter. Paul himself uses the term in that way. Paul highlights this point by declaring that we were all baptized into one body and into and in one spirit, even though we came and even though we continue to come from a diverse range of backgrounds. The phrase Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, it echoes what he would say to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And there he lists even more categories that show the diversity of people who are made one in Christ. That's the point, that regardless of where we have come from, we are united together in Christ. And in Paul's first water image of verse 12 It's one that we readily relate to, given that baptism is the first step of obedience for a person who first puts their trust in Jesus. It is the outward sign of an inward reality, of dying to sin and self and being raised to life in Christ. So Paul is not explicitly referring to water baptism here, but obviously just the use of the word calls to mind this sign of new life that we have in Jesus so it makes sense to use it to describe our entry into the body. Paul's second water image might be a little bit more confusing, uh, where he says, we drink of the one spirit. Now, perhaps Paul is referring to the cup of communion, which also unites the body of, uh, to Jesus. But more likely, uh, what he has in mind is what he said earlier in chapter 10 of this letter, when describing how Israel drank from the rock, which was Christ. Whatever the case, the unmistakable point of Paul's imagery here is that these many members are united by the one spirit in the body of Christ. And so it begs the question, doesn't it? What does unity in the body of Christ actually look like? This is essential for us to consider. 
especially because the Bible talks about it enough that we ought to pay close attention to what it is and how we are to attain it. Well, the first thing to say is that unity must be in Christ, in the one body and in the one spirit. And so that immediately marks it off as something specific. Unity is not unity in something vague, in, in being human, or you know, in, in some uh, you know, loose definition of love or peace. No, unity is in Christ. And actually, all unity is this way. To be united, uh, you need to be united on something. Why is it that we are so divided in the world and in the church today? Well, it's because we can't agree on what it is that we are to unite on. I, I didn't go, uh, but I heard about an event uh, this week uh, at a church in Darwin City where the speaker, uh, his name's Anthony Van Brown, was advocating for LGBTQI inclusion in the church. And by that, he wasn't referring to the church loving and welcoming of, of people from all walks of life and sharing the gospel with them and calling them to a, a greater love and hope in Jesus. No, he was referring to the church's full affirmation of homosexuality. And so as the vision and mission statement of his organization says... We work towards the day when all churches, denominations, Christian leaders, and organizations are no longer anti-LGBTI or just welcoming or accepting, but have become totally affirming. He also says that the enemy is not individuals, churches, ex-gay organizations, or political parties. The enemy is ignorance. Ben Brown is certainly seeking unity in the church. And as these statements show, he has a specific idea about how the church can reach that unity. In fact, as far as he can tell, unity will not be achieved in the church until it has become totally affirming. And can I just say, if you're here this morning, you're thinking about what Jesus has to say about homosexuality, whether it's uh, personally something you are wrestling with, or whether it's something that, you know, you, somebody you know that you have a relationship with is, is wrestling with, I would love to sit down and have a conversation with you about that. Please feel free to come and talk to me afterwards. But you see, in, in Van Brown's mind, unity is achieved through agreement on this issue, as those who claim to follow Christ, we need to know how we find that unity. Is that a legitimate thing to say that we as Christians must be united on? This is a great challenge. As theologian Kevin Van Hooser says, borrowing from G.K. Chesterton, to borrow from him, mere Protestant Christianity, that is, theological unity in ecclesial diversity, has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found arduous and left unfinished. What he's saying is that uh, ecclesial diversity, meaning, you know, different churches and denominations that exist, and seeking unity in, in theology, he's saying it's not been uh, tried and, and tested over the last 500 years and found to be a failure. No, he's saying it is found to be really difficult to do and is still an unfinished task that we are working towards. 
Christianity, all these centuries and millennia later, is still working towards unity in Christ. And a significant component of that is theological unity. And it takes years, sometimes even centuries, for those believers and those churches to humbly seek and eventually see that unity. And so we take what has been passed down to us by faithful teachers and brothers and sisters in Christ through the ages, through the centuries. We evaluate it through Scripture, and then we dialogue with one another, and then we take it back to Scripture. It is a mammoth effort, and it is ongoing. The Reformation didn't happen overnight, nor is it finished. Yet we continue on that task. To quote William Faulkner, the past is never dead. It's not even past. God continues to work in His church and to bring unity in Christ by His Holy Spirit and through His Word. And yes, I say His Word because that is what God has given us through His apostles and prophets to keep seeking unity in. I'll say more about that a bit later. And we need this because sin has separated us from God in so many ways. We don't naturally think rightly about God. We don't naturally desire what God desires. We don't naturally humble our own hearts and our thoughts before Him. We don't naturally seek the hard road of unity in mind and spirit because we prefer the comfort of unquestioned uniformity in minimal agreement or perhaps unquestioned uniformity in maximal agreement. We naturally cleave to our own groups based on our other identity marker preferences. We prefer to be in the middle class or in a certain culture or ethnicity or in with those who are passionate about the same hobbies and and, and causes as us rather than being in Christ. We choose churches based on these other things rather than being in Christ. Christ. Friends, the gospel alone changes our hearts and presses us on towards unity in one body and in one spirit. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're looking around at this mob of, you know, motley crew people and dad bods and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I can't see anyone here that would have anything in common with me. Well, believe it or not, we wonder that too. But what unites us is the one thing that is true of all of us. We were once people who lived for ourselves, who were slaves to our sin, and Christ set us free when we turned away from it and turned instead to Him. That is the single most important thing about any of us. And that is what unites us. If you are not a believer this morning, I'd love to talk to you about how you can know Jesus and be welcomed into his body this morning. Please come and see me or any of our other members afterwards if that is you. We are the body of Christ which is made up of many individual members. And that happens even though God has made us so magnificently diverse, which brings us to the second point. 
two, diverse members of a united body. Kids and adults, have you ever considered the journey that your food takes from the moment it comes into your body to the moment it comes out of your body? I mean, food looks very different going into your body compared to coming out of it, doesn't it? Right? Yeah, there's some vigorous nodding there amongst not just the children. So obviously, something has happened in your body in that time. It goes through your mouth your teeth and saliva, they work together to get it to a point where it can be swallowed. As you can see, here's a, here's a picture of Jeff and his internal organs. And then, you know, that, that food then gets pushed down by the muscles in your esophagus, down into your stomach where it's broken down even more. And then other organs like your liver and pancreas and gallbladder, they produce liquids that help break down the food and they extract the nutrients and the vitamins that your body needs from them. And then it passes through the small and the large intestines where the stuff that you need is kept and used in the body and the stuff that you don't need is eventually put into the escape pod and sent back out into the world. Now that's just a simple summary of how the individual members of the body work together for the good of the body. And each part in that process is absolutely necessary except for maybe the spleen. Let's read from verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. You see, in these next two sections from verse 14, Paul gives us examples of two different types of people who might try to think that they don't need the other members of the body. In this first section, he speaks to those who think that they are unimportant and who think that they have no value. If that's you, or if that's your tendency, listen to what the Lord is saying to you this morning. Notice how in both examples, the body parts themselves don't appreciate at all what they contribute to the body. They simply compare themselves to another member, recognizing that they aren't the same as that member, and then they say, therefore, that they must not belong. And the illustration, of course, makes Paul's point so clearly. Your feet serve, the pur- serve their purpose in your body as much as your hands, as do your ears as much as your eyes. And he moves on to how ridiculous it would be if the body was made up of only one member, Zai. He says in verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? I mean, it's a ridiculous picture. And kids, if you're taking notes and drawing pictures, I'd love you to pick a body part and draw that as though it was the whole body. And I'd love to see your pictures afterwards to see what they would look like. You see, it's not hard to see that thinking of a body like this is absolutely absurd. Nobody looks like that. And no body looks like that. Yet how often do we 
do exactly this in the body of Christ? How often do we expect people to fit certain molds and fit certain expectations that we have about the kinds of gifts that members should have rather than rejoicing in the diversity that God has given us? It has been and it has continued and it continues to be popular for churches or church services or campuses of churches to be unbiblically grouped according to certain commonalities. There are services for certain ethnic groups, or there are youth services, or there are young adult services. Now, let me be clear. There is nothing wrong with developing natural friendships and even establish groups within churches that are based on certain commonalities. And if people struggle with English, I don't see any reason why there shouldn't be whole churches that run their gatherings in a completely different language, one that they understand, like the Chinese church or the Korean church does here in Darwin. But to only target certain types of people or certain demographics for a church is never to be the aim or design or shape of the church. When the church gathers as the church, what should be reflected is the glorious diversity of people that God has drawn together and made one in Christ. So much so that a sociologist who studied people and their interactions would become a Christian because what he saw in the church was something that all of his textbooks and his experience told him was not possible. He witnessed the local church being so united in Christ that people from groups all across the sociological spectrum were showing real and practical love to one another. That is a true story. A man, uh, a sociologist who started attending Capitol Hill Baptist Church, that is exactly what, what happened. And that is still reflected at that church today. I remember when Robin and I were over in D.C. in 2020, a friend of mine, Austin, great name. He's a young, 20-something African-American man sitting in the pews before one of the church services next to an older Caucasian member of the church. Certainly in any other sphere, you would be wondering what was going on there. And I, and I remember talking to him and, 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 you know, talking to both of them and, and saying, oh, you know, do you have some kind of connection, family relation or something like that? And Austin replied, no, he's just a member of the church. He was just sitting there conversing with him. Church, I am so thankful that, that we evidently have diversity in our membership. We have older members. We have younger members. We have members from different ethnic backgrounds even though we're still small. What a great blessing that is to us. Do you see it as a blessing? Or do you lament the lack of more people that are like you? The church isn't called to uniformity. It's not called to groupthink, but it is called to unity in Christ. Amidst the diversity of people that have a diversity of spiritual gifts, loving and serving one another. 
Just because you may be gifted in a different way to the next member, that does not make you useless, nor does that make you not a part of the body. If you feel like your, your lack of gifts or contribution or what you perceive to be your lack of gifts or contribution make you think that you don't belong here, then hear the word of the Lord this morning. Brother, sister, you, if you are a member of Christ's body, then you belong here. It is physically impossible for you not to be a part of the body. And it is metaphysically impossible for you to not be a part of the body. The body is made up of many members. And if you are one of them, then regardless of which spiritual gifts God has given you, and whether you are noticed by many people or not, you are a necessary part of the body's function. I mentioned before some of the organs and parts of the body that are necessary for the digestion of food. Well, one small but extremely significant part of that, which most people aren't even aware of, is this little flap in your esophagus called the... Kids, anyone want to try and pronounce that? Ep, oh, you're not a kid. <laughs> Epiglottis. That's right. Does anyone know what it does, kids? No? When you swallow, it covers the entryway to your lungs so that food doesn't go down into your lungs and block the airway. What would happen if that happened? You wouldn't be able to breathe. You see, this, this part, which most people don't even know about, which is so small and so seemingly insignificant... If it was not there, the results could be catastrophic. Brothers and sisters, do not devalue yourself below how God values you. As Paul would go on to say, applying his illustration to the actual reality in the church in verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members of the body each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The gospel creates one body in Christ, made up of many diverse members. And sometimes there are those who think that because they're not gifted in a certain way, they don't belong. If that is you, hear the word this morning. Your worth is not in your gifts, whether real or perceived. Your worth is in Christ. And you are an indispensable part of His body. Well, there are also those members who have the opposite problem. They think that they don't need the rest of the body because they've got the best gifts. As a matter of fact, the body should be thankful to have me, they think. Well, God has something to say about them too. Let's read verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. When I was in high school, there was a guy a year or two above me who was an extremely talented musician. I remember talking to one of his band members at one point who said something like, you know, if he could just have five of himself in the band, then that would be his ideal. Now, I, I don't think he expressed himself that way. 
But it's possible that that's basically what the people Paul is addressing were saying, which he quotes here. As we'll continue to discover over these next few chapters, it seems like there was a group of people in the Corinthian church who thought that their spiritual gifts, and most likely the gift of tongues, were superior gifts to others. And as a result, they figured that they didn't need those members who were weaker and who were less honorable. Well, surely it doesn't take us long to realize how quickly we can fall into that same attitude. You know, we don't have a, a caste system in our culture like others do, but we certainly rank others around us according to a range of different criteria. How easily that same attitude worms its way into our hearts and into the church. For me personally, over the last few years, this is something that God has really challenged and highlighted to me and sanctified me in. How often do I, as a Christian in church, and how often did I, in my work as a pastor before Emmaus Road, think that some people were just not worth my time? How often did I think that certain people were not worth investing into because, well, they didn't contribute much? How often did I think, you know, I, I don't need your friendship. I've got plenty of friends here who are, who are way more encouraging and fun to be around, and you're just hard work. I'll tolerate you, but I won't work hard to love and care for you. Brothers and sisters, if God has given you many spiritual gifts or ones that are more obviously on display and valued and treasured by others, Watch over your own heart to ensure that you don't devalue or underappreciate the members of the body that don't have those same gifts or have ones that you think are less honorable. Let's read from verse 22. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable... We bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another." Notice how Paul doesn't deny that there are some members that seem to be weaker and that there are unpresentable parts which are treated with greater modesty. Paul here is actually most likely referring to the private parts of our bodies without saying it outright. Now, I'm glad he did that because we have children here this morning. And I'm glad that none of them have picked up on it. And, is, and as is the case with the actual private parts in our bodies, we cover them up, right? We think, well, we, we, we don't want them to be seen. And so in one sense, you might think, well, they are of less honor. And yet, they are indispensable to the body. Paul doesn't deny that we do this with our actual bodies, and he recognizes that there are parts of Christ's body that we might treat with so-called greater modesty. 
But that's not where it ends. God has so composed the body that he gives greater honor to the part that lacked it. This is so like God. Uh, He uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. It is the last who are first, and it is the first who are last. And he does this so that none of us may boast in ourselves, but that we may boast only in him. No member of the body can actually say, I don't need you. He has made it this way. But that's not the only reason that God has done so. It's also so that there may be no division in the body. It's also so that we may have, as verse 25 says, the same care for one another. So that's meant to say 25. Whether you are a part of the body that is a prominent and visible part that is held in high honor, like perhaps the head, or whether you are a small, out of sight, and seemingly insignificant part, the body cares for all of its members, all of them. You know, a few months ago, uh, Hugh accidentally dropped a book cabinet on one of my toes. Um, He says, accidentally... mm, I mean, it's, you know, it's my fault for doing the typical Darwin thing and moving furniture with standard-issue Darwin footwear of thongs, right? But when my, end, when my toe ended up as a bit of a bloody mess, did I say, oh, you know, it's, it's just my toe. I could actually live without it. If you amputated it, you know, I, I, I'm not even sure that I would miss it. So it'll be fine. I don't need to bandage it. I don't need to look after it, wash it. Yeah, let's just keep going. No. I cleaned the wounds, I got a few band-aids, and I bandaged it up. And I continued to care for it, even as my toenail went black and it eventually dropped off and then, you know, eventually started to grow back again. Whether we think of certain members of the body of Christ as more or less gifted or more or less presentable or more or less honorable, God has put each one in the body that we might have the same care for one another. For Christians, as members of the body of Christ, our sense of worth does not come from the gifts. It comes from knowing and from becoming increasingly content and fulfilled in the fact that you are in Christ. That is the path to killing jealousy and envy of others in your life. And that is also the path to honoring and appreciating all the members of the body and all the spiritual gifts that God has given them. Being able to provide the same care for one another does not come by us denying or downplaying the gifts that God has given to each member. Martin Luther put it this way. There is no humility in denying the gifts which God has given. If somebody somebody said, I have hands, should I humble myself and say, I beg your pardon, they are hoofs? The sun does not say that it is black. The tree does not say, I bear no apples, pears, or grapes. That is not humility. Humility. 
But if you have gifts, you should say, these gifts are from God. I did not confer them upon myself. One should not be puffed up on their account. If someone else does not have the gifts I have, then he has others. If I exalt my gifts and despise another's, that is pride. The son does not vaunt himself, though more fair than the earth and the trees, but says, although tree you do not shine, I will not despise you, for you are green and I will help you to be green. If you have more spiritual gifts, or if you have more prominent spiritual gifts, God has given them to you so that you might pour them out for the good and the benefit of the body. Just as the sun helps the tree be green. But you ought not boast about the spiritual gifts that God has given you, and nor should you pretend like He has not given them to you. Instead, use them for the purpose God intended and build up the body. Care for its members. And if you don't have those kinds of gifts, you are still gifted to care for the body. A tree might not be the sun, but it provides shade. It produces oxygen. It produces nourishment and protection for the many organisms in the ecosystem. This is all crucial. Especially as we come to verse 26. When we recognize that this is how God has designed the body, then verse 26 becomes far more possible. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You suffer when your brother or sister suffers. Because even though you might not struggle with the same things that they do, you might not be going through the same thing that they are, But being a member of the same body means caring for them and walking with them in their suffering. It means washing their wounds with the love and the grace of the Holy Spirit and patching them up with the bandages of God's truth from the Bible. It may mean reminding them that though they may feel insignificant, God has gifted them and given them as a member of Christ's body. And you rejoice when your brother or sister rejoices, even if it's something that you might not feel particularly joyful about. Even if in that moment you yourself do not feel like it. But of course, the most challenging part of this verse will always be when the same event produces suffering in one member and rejoicing in another. When the couple, unable to have children, hear of another getting pregnant with their fifth child. When one member achieves all that they want to in their career, while another seems to constantly face closed doors and disappointments and unfulfilling jobs. When one member gets engaged, while another remains single. When, one, when the child of one family excels in school, while the child of another lags behind due to learning difficulties. When one member celebrates their mother's 70th birthday and another continues to feel the pain of never truly knowing theirs. 
church? Will we suffer and rejoice together? Our sin will keep pushing us towards being more self-centered and self-focused. It will naturally make us want to avoid the difficulty and the pain of living this out. Church, are we so deeply rooted in the gospel that we would be empowered by the Spirit to tirelessly pursue the kind of unity that is found in Christ and in Him alone? The kind of unity that celebrates with those in our lives who experience a joy that we never will. The kind of unity that is willing to suffer alongside other members even when we'd rather not be hanging out with the wet blankets. That might sound impossible because without the gospel, it virtually is. But with it, by God's grace, in Christ, we can pursue unity with the diverse members that God has given us in Christ's body. And it can happen because the person with a redeemed heart ultimately does not find their worth in their work or in their successes or in their relationships or in their pain and suffering or in their failures or anywhere in themselves. As we sang earlier, my worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in pride or shame, but in the blood of Christ that flowed at the cross. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is only possible because Christ has reordered the loves and the priorities of our hearts. And by His Spirit, He helps us to keep finding our worth, not in all these things, but in Him. And as He does that in us individually, He builds us up in the one body, which takes us to our final point. Gifted members of Christ's body. This last section of chapter 12 is in many ways repeating what the first section said. So if the first and the third points to this sermon sound like they're saying virtually the same thing, that's the reason why. Paul is taking his big point, which he first made in verses 12 and 13, and is now bringing it all together. The diverse members of the body, the spiritual gifts that God has given given them, and the point of it all, he summarizes here. Let's read verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. After all that's been said, here is the summary point once again. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You are diverse members united in one body. But now to apply the teaching, that teaching to that of spiritual gifts, he goes on. Let's read from verse 28. 
And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all prophets? Are all all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Now, as I mentioned last week, this list is slightly different to the one that we met uh, last week back in verses 8 to 10 of chapter 12. Not only does Paul mention ones that he didn't mention before, so he mentions gifts of teaching and helping and administration in this passage, but he also begins the list by giving a ranking. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And Paul, again, reminds us, he uses the language of God being the one who appoints these gifts to the church according to his will, as he did in verses 6, 11, and 18 of chapter 12. And then he ranks the gifts. I mean, this sounds a little bit odd, doesn't it? In light of everything he's just said about the unity of the body and the parts that receive less honor, how can he then now go and say first, second, third? What what does that mean? I mean, and it seems even stranger in light of verse 31, where he says, you know, eagerly desire the greatest gift, the greater gifts. How does that fit? Paul's point in ranking these is in describing which of the gifts are of greater usefulness in the public gatherings of the church. So he's about to talk about in chapter 14 why we would prefer some, he would prefer somebody to seek the gift of prophecy over that of tongues because it is better for building up the body. So, that at the, so there is, at the very least, that kind of ordering that he's referring to. And that doesn't mean that another member is less valuable or less needed. After all, he's just made that point. But he recognizes the significant role that these three spiritual gifts play in the life of the church. As we saw in chapter 3, uh, Paul saw his role as laying a foundation for the church. And this is the same kind of language, the same kind of image that he uses in Ephesians chapter 2. The church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so those two gifts in particular, they play a foundational role in the life of the church. And what we have in Scripture is the deposit left behind by the apostles and the prophets, which is why the Bible is our standard and our guide for what it means to be united in Christ. As I mentioned last week, I'll return to that topic in a couple of weeks' time. But Paul can speak of these three gifts as being first, second, and third, and not see that to be somehow in conflict with or at odds with a healthy, united image of Christ's body, because he is talking about the role of building the body. He's talking about the role that they play in in building up the body of Christ. And we find it difficult to grasp the image. We find it difficult to make sense of that, to, to, to put those things together, because when we hear that, when we hear first, second, third, you know, we think of the winner's podium at the Olympics, right? Or at other events, F1, whatever it might be. You know, first is the most prominent position in the center, and it is elevated to the highest. And then second and third at, you know, slightly lower elevations are there on the podium. And then, of course, there's everybody else who didn't finish in the top three, who are nowhere to be found. You don't even know where they are. You don't see them. And so it's difficult for us to grasp that idea because that is often how we think about ranking. 
Once again, if we see spiritual gifts as something to boast about, as some kind of achievement to unlock, then something that, uh, something that makes us more or less important to the body, then we'll have a hard time understanding how this can fit with that. You know, if you hear that ranking and you think to yourself, yeah, I need to get myself into the top three. I need to, I need to somehow get, get onto that winner's podium. Well, keep working to align your mind and heart about spiritual, about what Scripture says of the spiritual gifts. You notice how Paul doesn't even skip a beat after saying this. He moves straight on to listing other spiritual gifts without even being concerned at all that he's just ranked three of them as playing a key role in the body. And then to underscore the point, he rhetorically asks whether all people share the same gifts or not. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what a rhetorical question is, it's a question where the answer itself is made very clear in the question and the way you ask it. It's not hard to see that what Paul is, uh, the answer that he is giving in these questions is a resounding no. No, not all are apostles. Not all possess healing. Not gifts of healing. Not all speak with tongues. Not all interpret. No one gift is given to all members. That's a point that he's been making all, all the whole chapter. And here he is making it explicit. And that includes especially the gifts of tongues and interpretation. Paul lists them last here. And he lists them last in verse 10 intentionally. And given Paul's focus in chapter 13 of love... And his extended discussion about tongues in chapter 14, it is extremely likely that the gift that some of the Corinthians were boasting about, that they were saying, I have no need of you because I have this wonderful gift, was tongues. And so Paul's final line about it in verse 31 points to what he has to say in chapter 14. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, if you're, uh, as a side note, wondering why Paul has very clearly said several times in this chapter that all gifts are apportioned according to God's divine will, but then says here that we are also to earnestly desire gifts, especially the higher gifts, well, that taps into the doctrine of uh, the compatibility of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I'm happy to talk about that later if you have questions, but I simply want to point that out, that, that here is yet another example of that truth. And so what does Paul mean by higher? Well, in verse 5 of chapter 14, he says that the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues so that the church may be built up. Again, this is in line with his ordering of those speaking gifts as first, second, and third. It's not to say that one with the spiritual... Uh, with the spiritual gift that is more useful for the building up of the church, is greater and therefore justified in looking at other members and saying, I don't need you. No, Paul simply wants to encourage the Corinthians to stop boasting about certain gifts and to seek the ones that are most edifying, most encouraging, most building up for the body. Now, currently, uh, our church is probably not at risk of seeing the gift of tongues as being the ultimate spiritual gift. I mean, that's just a, a guess. 
But I think that's probably accurate. But we're certainly not immune to prizing certain spiritual gifts in such a way that we look down our noses at others. What spiritual gift might that be for you? What might it be for us? I pray that we would not fall into that same trap regardless of the spiritual gift. Christ's body is made of many members whom God has gifted in diverse ways. May he keep us from creating levels of superiority because of it. So do you have a healthy body image? Maybe your view of Christ's body was one of uniformity instead of unity. Or perhaps you thought to yourself, well, I'm, I'm a great body of one. A healthy image of the body is one that recognizes that it is Christ's and that unity among all its diverse pasts isn't achieved through running away from what it means to be united in Christ but by running towards it. And a healthy image of your own body in Christ's body as a member of that body is one that humbly and truly acknowledges the spiritual gifts that God has given you, recognizing that you are a necessary part of it and seeks to care for the other members with those gifts. In the words of High School Musical, we're all in this together. How can you serve and love the body of Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that the culture, the world that we inhabit is one that is constantly shaping us to think more and even only of ourselves. Yet you call your children to do differently. Father, we know that that is challenging. We know that it is hard to seek and to find and obtain unity in Christ amidst all the diverse people and gifts that you have placed in your church. Father, we need the help of your Spirit. Please wash over us, breathe life into us, that we may, by your grace, drink of the same Spirit, love and care for one another, suffer and rejoice together. Expand our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.